Well, we're going to open God's Word together. And if you are headed to Children's Church, you can go ahead and make your way. Alrighty. We're going to be in John chapter 13 together today. John chapter 13. And as you make your way there, let's, uh, let's do this. Let's, let's pray again. And this time ask the Lord to reveal his word to us. Father, your word speaks to us so clearly about the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness, about the, the path that leads to life and the path that leads to death. Father, help us to choose life that we may live and that we may choose joy and peace with you. Help us to understand your word by your Holy Spirit. May he illumine it to our uh, minds and hearts and give us uh, not only the ability to obey, but the desire to obey you and to follow you in every way. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those of you who know me well know that I am somewhat accident prone. Um, I have cut the fingers of my left hand often enough that I... Uh, bought a Kevlar glove to wear on that hand whenever I'm cutting up deer for the freezer. Uh, I shot a nail gun through my left thumb. Uh, about a 16-penny ring shank nail went, to, went with me and the board it was attached to, um, to the ER when I was uh, 19. And um, I got to the hospital and they said, can I help you? And I said, ma'am, I hope so. <laughs> You know, you got to keep your sense of humor in a situation like that, right? I've gotten, um, I've had a shard of glass go into the top of my leg when I fell, remodeling um, our attic in our house in Iowa. I've gotten stitches in my chin, uh, stitches in two fingers, a couple of places on both legs, and I carry on my body numerous scars, uh, including the, the one I sustained a couple of weeks ago. In my driveway, we have these casement windows out over the kitchen sink that crank out. And I was looking for something in the van, opened the door, was looking all around, and stood up and cracked my skull right here, okay? And it bled like crazy. Uh, I may have said something unchristian when it happened. Um, <laughs> and, and I now have about a two-inch scar on my scalp, right? And so, um, uh, and all of these were painful to a variety of degrees, right? But they are not the most painful things that have happened to me. Uh, that putting the nail through your thumb, that, that ranks up there. But um, the worst pain that I've ever experienced in my life did not come from injury. It came from deliberately inflicted emotional damage from other people. Have you ever experienced that? 
The worst wounds come from, came from people that I trusted, people that I believed were my friends, people who ate at my table, people with whom I prayed and fellowshiped. And so, even though I have long since forgiven everyone who cut my soul open, it took me a while to get there. And I think, in fact, that most of us go through life like porcupines. You know what a porcupine is? Yeah. Porcupine is an interesting animal. They have all these spines on all over the backside of them, but underneath they're just soft. And a porcupine goes through life, and the one great question about a porcupine is how to get close without getting hurt. Right? And and we go through life like that. We only let a few people into the underside of our life, into where it's soft, into where we're vulnerable. And when we do, and someone stabs us, boy, that hurts, right? And the worst kind of difficulty, the worst kind of pain, is the betrayal of a friend or one who turns away from you at your moment where you need them most. And in the grace of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, was allowed to experience exactly that kind of thing so that we would have a sympathetic priest to go to when we experience that kind of thing. And we are going to see here in John chapter 13, Jesus be betrayed, and he's going to predict that his best friend, one of two of his best friends, is going to deny him that very night. And we're going to see Jesus in the middle of that. He's going to have betrayal and denial as the bookends of this. And right in the middle, you're going to see Jesus talk about love. Which I think is absolutely critical because guess what you have to be able to do? You have to be able to love in the middle of betrayal and denial. Amen? That's what life is. And so we're going to look at what Jesus does and what he says as our great example for how to do this. So if you got your Bible, I want to show you John chapter 13, beginning in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. 
Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. Now picture this scene. These guys are all, again, this is a... you know, all apologies to Da Vinci. He was a great artist, but he was a lousy historian. All right, uh, he pictures he, he pictures the disciples at a Western type table with chairs, and it's not that. It's a low slung table, maybe a little about the same height as your coffee table in your living room, and but longer because all these guys are around it, and they're laying on the floor, propped up on their elbow, and eating off the table with their right hand. And so you've got all these guys around the table like numbers on a clock going around. And everybody's facing the same direction. Everybody's got their feet stuck out on the ground away from the table. And so you could easily, if you were next to somebody, lean back against them. And you could whisper to the person at the table next to you. But Jesus is talking to the whole group and he says he's troubled says, after saying these things, what things? After he is telling them that, look, you need to demonstrate extravagant love to one another. Just as I have demonstrated extravagant love to you, you need to demonstrate extravagant love to one another. Oh, and by the way, when I am betrayed, don't think that it means that I'm not the Messiah, realize and remember that it means that I am the Messiah because I've told you in advance it's going to happen. But after saying that, he begins to be troubled about the reality that he's just announced that one of them is a traitor. Can you imagine? It's your last night alive before a crucifixion that you know is going to happen in the morning. This is your last night essentially on death row. You know this is going to happen and you know who it's going to happen through. And Jesus, because he is fully human in addition to being fully God, is troubled about this. He says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you, one of you men who have been my friends, one of you who have ate with me and walked with me and talked with me, uh, who when we travel, we all sleep in the same room, who has shared my food, who has listened to me teach for hours on end, who has seen all of the miracles, one of you is the traitor. Peter... I love Peter. I think it's because I identify with Peter. Peter is the guy who enters the room mouth first, and that's me. And I'm like, yes, okay. I'm, I, I react like he, like he reacts. And he's like, hey, John, ask him who it is. <laughs> and so, and so, And we don't get John's name. John's not named, but John introduces himself for the first time by this little description. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Meaning the one who was his closest friend. 
Peter, James, and John were Jesus' close friends. John was the closest friend that Jesus had. His buddy. And so he's next to him at the table. John, ask him who it is. John leans back. Hey, Jesus, who is it? Jesus whispers back, the one I give this bread to. Tears off a piece of bread, dips it into something, probably olive oil. If you've been to Biagi's, right? And he hands it to Judas. And Judas takes it. And then Jesus says this. This must have been some of the hardest words ever spoken. What you're about to do, do quickly. In other words, Judas, pull the scab off, man. I know, you're, I know it's you. Go get started. And Judas gets up and leaves. And they've heard him say, what you're about to do, do quickly. But nobody apart from John Peter know what's up. They think that because it's Passover night, that maybe they're going to go make an offering to the poor. That was regarded as a holy thing to do on that particular day. Or maybe he's going to go get food for the, the Feast of Unleavened, unleavened Bread that, that begins on the following Sabbath, the following Friday night after dark. They don't know. They don't suspect. You know, sometimes I think we, we think that Judas was, was like really obvious from the beginning. You know, like I, I, I watched, uh, I watched the, the most recent Star Wars movie, right? And you got Benicio Del Toro in there as, the, uh, as, this, as this guy who's supposed to help the, the crew on their desperate mission. And when you see him on the screen, you think, that guy's a traitor. Right, But it wasn't like that. Judas is just one of the guys. He's friends with all of these people. No ominous music plays whenever he shows up. Right? You don't get that. Jesus knows the entire time from the moment he has chosen that he is the traitor. And Judas goes out away from the table and then John adds this little note and it was night because I think John is drawing a connection between the condition outside and the condition of Judas heart because at the moment he takes the bread from Jesus at that very moment Satan enters in and takes control of Judas and Judas's heart is as black as the sky outside it's darkened by his sin but at that very moment that this is happening Jesus does something startling he starts talking about love i got to confess that that would not be my first thought. Amen? My friend, the guy I trusted, the guy who is literally taking food from my hand at my table, is going out to turn me over to the authorities this very second. 
I'll tell you what my inclination would be. It would be, hey, that guy out there, he is the traitor. If you see him, by the way, hit him with a rock, <laughs> okay? <laughs> that would be my, I mean, I, I'm in the flesh here, okay? But that's not what Jesus does. He starts talking about love. Look at the text. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see the amazing contrast that's here? Between the darkness of Judas' heart, filled with the devil, and Jesus' response to it. Judas is literally possessed by the devil, and he has started up the terrible machinery that will produce Jesus' arrest, and then trial, and then torture, and then death. And in that very moment, Jesus says, right now is the Son of Man glorified, and God glorified in him. How is that possible? How can it be that the very thing that will be the most humiliating to Jesus is the moment of his greatest glory and which brings the greatest glory to God the Father? It is because in Jesus' obedience and sacrifice and suffering and death and resurrection and, and exaltation, which, by the way, from God's perspective, are all part of the same event, God's love and grace and his justice is being done against sin and against death, and it's all being revealed in the supreme way that it will ever be revealed. At that very moment, God's justice is being poured out against sin. At that very moment, God's grace and his love are being revealed. You want to see God's justice be done? It is done to Jesus. And he says, this is what sin costs. Sin is not cheap. It is expensive. It takes the life of the Son of God to bring peace between you and God. You want to see God's grace? You want to see God's love? You want to see God's mercy? This is the demonstration of it. This is the supreme manifestation of grace and mercy and love the dead Son of God hanging on a cross for you. God's grace, God's justice, kiss at the cross. And he says this is the moment when God is glorified in the Son. This is the moment when the Son will glorify the Father. This is the moment where sinners will be saved despite all their sins by God's grace. This is the moment when God is more glorified in Jesus and when God glorifies himself through Jesus 
this is the time when all of that happens. And they don't understand yet what any of that means. You had those moments where you're talking to somebody about something and they're going, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And you know they've got no clue what you've just said. <laughs> right? And don't point them out if they're in the room. Okay, but... Uh, but that's what's happening. He is giving all this instruction to these guys, and they don't understand what's happening yet. The cross and the resurrection haven't happened yet, but Jesus nevertheless tells them that he'll be going away soon to a place that they cannot follow. Now, there's two interpretive options as to where that place is. One is to the cross, where none of them will go, at least not in the same way, at least not yet. The other is at his resurrection and ascension, he will go to the Father. He will go to heaven away from them. To neither place can they go at this point. But either way, what Jesus is saying is this that my mission on earth is ending and you won't be able to be with me in the same way. And so he starts giving them instructions for what to do after he's gone. Guys, let me tell you, I'm leaving. You won't be able to come now, but let me tell you what to do when I'm gone. And the instructions that he gives are so simple on the one hand that a little child can memorize them and do them. But on the other hand, so deep and so profound that if you live your entire Christian life, you will never quite attain to this. It's only something you can strive for. What are they? Look at the text. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now let me ask you, how did Jesus love them? was costly it wasn't sentimental it wasn't sappy it was so high that none of us can reach it we can only strive for it we can just sort of start to get close to it and imitate it it's a love that washes feet a love that is willing to suffer and even to die for other people's good it's the love that joyfully and willingly says, I will lay down my life for my friends, for those closest to me. I will lay down my life. In fact, Jesus says it's a love that is so unique, so uncharacteristic of the world and its people that it will be the thing, the thing, that marks out his followers from everybody else. You notice he does not say by this, all men will know you are my disciples. You'll be able to see them. They're all the white people. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, by this, all men will know you are my disciples. They're all the rich people. They're all the good-looking people. They're all the healthy people. They're all the tall people. They're all the short people. They're all the blonde people the brown-haired people, the blue-eyed people, the whatever people. He doesn't say that. 
In fact, what the Bible says over and over and over and over again is that your race, your ethnicity, your tribe, your socioeconomic status, your health, your relative level of status, your age, your sex, whatever distinguishing characteristic you might identify with, that these things are all absolutely irrelevant to being part of the people of God. That there is no distinction between who is in the kingdom and who is not based on all of these human characteristics. That in fact, the thing that distinguishes God's people from every other kind of people in the world is not that. It is faith in Jesus Christ that results in love for one another. How about that? That's how you know who the real McCoy is. Do they love one another? Right at the moment that Jesus is about to tell them some more things to be busy about while he is gone, Peter, as usual, speaks up. And he interrupts what's going to be a longer speech. And he says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. If you found out your best friend was going away and told you you couldn't come, wouldn't you be curious about where he's going? Well, Peter is curious. He loves his friend Jesus, and so he wants to know, Jesus, where are you going? What do you mean I can't come? I'll go with you everywhere. I'll go with you even to death. Peter is sincere, but he is not quite there yet. And Jesus says, you can't come now, but you will come afterward. I think Jesus is talking about crucifixion and death. Because guess what? Peter is a coward early on. But by the end of his life, he's turned into a lion. And he will go to crucifixion and death with the name of Jesus on his lips. He says, Peter, you can't come with me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter will. Peter is willing in that moment to make bold promises. But it's one thing to make these kind of promises in a comfortable room after a good meal as you're hanging out with all your buddies. It's another thing when the mob shows up with torches and clubs and swords. And Peter's not ready yet, but he will be one day. And Jesus tells him, look, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Now, my parents got chickens a few years ago. And I always thought that roosters crowed when they saw the sun. That's, whoever told you that lied. 
okay? <laughs> Roosters crow when they feel like it. If they think it might be getting close to daylight, they're crowing, right? So the point is, early in the morning. Early in the morning, right? If you'd like to, if you think the idea of waking up to the rooster crowing is a great idea, try it about three nights in a row. And then you'll be looking for a shotgun, <laughs> right? <laughs> but uh, be like, oh, shotgun, all right, here we go. <laughs> Look for that joker. <laughs> Where is he, right? Um, point is, is that this is going to happen early in the morning. In other words, not that many hours from now, Peter. Not that many hours from now. Now, this is a beautiful text. It really is. It's beautifully structured, beautifully written. And what you have is in between betrayal and a prediction of denial that is sure to happen, you have Jesus offering love to his friends and commanding them to love one another. And I think that reality points us toward application for ourselves. Because we very often find ourselves, like Jesus, in between betrayal and denial. Our friends aren't always loyal to us. They're as tainted by sin as we are. And a word of encouragement, if you finish life with a few close friends, you're luckier than most. Because sometimes your friends, people that you love, are going to hurt you in despicable, heinous, sinful ways. But in the midst of that, we have this shining moment with Jesus. Where he is telling us, even in the midst of his own pain, love one another. Love one another. I think by God's grace, we have two great defenses against the most painful wounds that people can inflict on us. Number one, knowing that God loves us. Knowing that God loves us. When I say that, by the way, I am not talking about intellectual awareness of theological truth. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes people say, I know that God loves me, but... And then what I want to ask as a question following that is, do you know that he loves you, really? Is this more than an intellectual thing for you? Do you feel it down in your soul that God loves you? Because that's the reality of it. That if you are a child of God, God loves you. In fact, he cannot love you any more than he already does because he loves you perfectly and infinitely. So much so that he sent Jesus Christ, his own, only son, to the cross to get you into his family. He loves you. He loves you. Beyond that, he cannot go. There is no further that God's love can reach than that. He loves you. 
And when you know that God loves you, when you know that God loves you so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for your sins to bring you into his family, and that he cheers for you and loves you and is transforming you and is setting you free from sin and is building you up to maturity in Christ, then there's a whole lot of stuff that you can deal with. Because at the end of the day, friends and family can all walk away. My life and all of its treasures can burn to ashes, but if at the end of the day God loves me, then I have infinite worth and I have infinite treasure. Amen? So that's defense number one. Number two, loving one another. The church should be, in fact, must be, one of the places in the world where people love one another in tangible, self-sacrificial ways, where we lay down our lives for each other, where we serve one another, where we support one another, where we pray for one another, where we carry one another's burdens, where we build up one another and forgive one another and confess our sins to one another and honor one another. By the way, that's a section of about 52 of those that are in your New Testament. It's to be that place place where we are known and loved and served and if we do these things well then the church becomes a haven from the world that it is meant to be and don't we need it son we need it i don't know if you've been out in the world lately but it is a hateful nasty place Don't we need a place where we can find healing and encouragement and forgiveness and the sort of love that doesn't give up on us? And we need it. And God has given us this command through the lips of his son that we would be that kind of place. It's one of the things the church is meant to be. And as we grow into that, it will also be evident to everyone who is outside the faith that we truly belong to Jesus. By God's grace, I want to just give you a word of pastoral encouragement, okay? By God's grace, I think that we are becoming that kind of place where we genuinely love one another. I'm thrilled and encouraged beyond measure by that. Because that's the point. That's what Jesus' transformation, that's what Jesus' sacrifice is meant to do, is to make us all into people like Jesus who love one another, even in the midst of the reality that we're still sinners. And we're becoming that kind of place. And my prayer is that we would excel still more in that. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. That you love us supremely and infinitely. And you thereby ascribe to us both infinite worth and give us infinite treasure.
that we are loved by God. Loved so much that you sent your son to die on a cross for us, to, to bear the shame that we deserved for what we have done, to bear the guilt that we deserve to carry for what we have done and the things that we didn't do that we should have done. Father, you love us supremely. Father, I pray that that would remind us every day that we are secure, that we are kept, that there is one person in all the universe who will never give up on us, who always believes in us, always hopes, always cheers, always is patient, always is kind, and it's our Father in heaven. And Father, may that knowledge drive us to love one another in the same way. That your church might truly become the haven it is meant to be, the safe place from the world where your love is experienced in personal relationships one to another. Father, we love you and we want to have our church be that kind of a place even more than it already is. And so, Father, we ask for your enablement by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.